Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Are you guys ready to jump into God's Word? All right, and we're going to do it. It's going to be in Ephesians chapter, end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3 today. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll open up the Scriptures together. Thank you so much for joining us online. Uh, those of you that are here in person, I hope you've already sensed the presence of the Lord uh, as you've been greeted and different people have served you, serving your kids. Uh, let's just pray as we go as a, a corporate body together before the throne of grace. Let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, only because of what your son Jesus has done for us. Uh, by grace, thank you so much for seeing us, as Ephesians has told us, as holy, many of us this week been very unholy. And uh, by your grace, though, through your son Jesus, those of us who are in Christ, you see us as holy. That's amazing. We have reason to rejoice just in that. But you let us come together, that you let us be together with people that have different opinions and thoughts and views and experiences and stories and all be in this one place worshiping one Lord, one Savior, uh, your son Jesus Christ. Thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for the work that you've done. I pray you do more of a work in us today. I pray every soul that came through these doors today that's watching online as a result of the time that we spend in your word would be more like your son Jesus when we're done. There are skeptics, there are skeptics that are here. God, will you soften their anger towards you? Will you help them? Not even that I convince them with some persuasive argument, but just experiencing your grace and your love that they would be drawn to you. I pray for those that are hiding in sin. God, help them see the freedom that they can have in your son Jesus. I pray for, for marriages that are struggling and they haven't told anybody, God, I pray today would be a step towards your truth. I pray for people that feel shame because of decisions. God, bring your grace and wash away the shame. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And I love a good mystery. And I think that it's pretty generally true that most of us do. Uh, we see it. Just think about in our culture how many legendary stories there are, things that are unsolved, that we're drawn to, whether it's a movie that's written, there's TV series that have been done, like unsolved mysteries, and we want, why do we watch them? Why is there a court TV? Why do we watch these mysteries? Why is there like news channels that are all about murders that have taken place, and how did it get solved? And, and some of you think through these stories, whether it's Bigfoot, and you go to Alaska, and you're like, I'm going to be the one that finds them, right? Instead, you just buy a Yeti cooler, right? And you're good. Some of you are like, Area 51, what in the world's going on there? What's the government hiding on us at that place? Like, we want to know, are there aliens hanging out with us? Like, what's going on with all that? And you just hear these different things that are part of our, our culture, stories. I've been intrigued for years, ever since it happened. Uh, Flight 370 from Malaysia, how does a plane disappear? What in the world's going on with that? And there's theories and ideas, but we don't. And I think one of the things that's, that draws us in is there's information we might think we know, but we don't know, and we want to see it revealed. Some of you right now are following the story of, of the young lady, Gabby. I think it's Petito is how you say her name. I haven't been up on it a bunch. And you're hoping, they find her. did they find her boyfriend between first and second service? They find her boyfriend? All right, now we know how many people are watching. You're like, no, 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 no. See, we're intrigued by that. That's why we want to know. Or did you see the lawyer in South Carolina right now that's in the news uh, that his, his wife and his son were killed, I think, like a couple months ago? And then he admitted that he hired someone to kill him, but it didn't work? First of all, how does that happen? I'm paying you money to shoot me, and you missed. Okay, do it again. I gave you enough for two bullets. Like, I, I don't understand. There's like a mystery. And then there's other crimes that are popping up with that guy. And so there's all this stuff that's concealed. We want to see it revealed. I want to share something with you today as a church. I realize when I say this, 80% of you will judge me. 20% of you are probably going to feel vindicated in your own bad decision making. I understand that too. But here it is. I watch Dateline. 
the way it usually happens. Somebody's giving me the hand. All right. <laughs> They're in. That's the part of the 20%. The rest of you are like, he's trash. Anyway, <laughs> the way it happens at our house is my wife and I watch TV together and she always falls asleep when we do this. And so it'd be like a Friday night. I'm flipping through the stations and then I see, hi, I'm Lester Holtz. <laughs> It was an unthinkable crime. And then I'm like, no, it's not, Lester. Like, you did this last week. It was different names. Some guy killed his wife. He did a bunch of stupid stuff. They found out, and you're going to tell us how it happened. And I'm in. Let's go. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what happens in these, these shows. And so why is it that it draws me in? Because I want to know the things that were concealed. Did they get revealed? Did truth come out? Was it the truth that I expected it to be? Was there a twist? Like, what happened? And then the mystery. And when we don't know the details… It's frustrating. Those of you who are following Gabby, but might be old enough to remember a girl named Natalie Holloway. Remember, and then but the, the, the truth's not coming out, and we think we know, but it's frustrating. And you think about what we've experienced as, a, as believers, as followers of Christ during these last 18 months and how frustrating so many things that have happened, whether it's on the news, whether it's in church, whether it's on social media, whether it's in our relationships. There's a lot of frustration that's taken place. Some of you are asking, and maybe not consciously, maybe subconsciously, but asking, God, what are you doing in this time right now? What are you doing? And how are you revealing yourself? That's exactly what our passage of Scripture tells us today. If you've got your Bible, it's in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. And uh, what we've done so far, for in case you're joining us today or just by way of review for some of you, is we've been walking through this letter called Ephesians, and it's a letter written by a guy who loves this church. He helped start it, and he hasn't been there probably for about 10 years. And he's writing back to them because they're, they're fallen into, they're tempted to fall into being shaped more by the culture than by God's Word. We can understand that. And he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, I want you to have an incorruptible love because their temptations are so weird to us. I know it's hard to understand the Bible sometimes. They're tempted to worship sex and money and political power rather than God. Things haven't changed, have they? And so what does he do? He tells them the first part of the book so far has all been encouragement. In verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 is all about our position in Christ. Who, when we trust Christ, who we become, and it's a changed identity. And chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 is all about our experience of that position in Christ. And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 is all about our redemption in Christ, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we've been made alive in Christ. And then chapter 2 and verse 10 gives us this crazy verse that shows that we're God's artwork, His masterpiece, and He's got good works for us to walk in. And then He tells us what it looks like to live by grace, that people who know grace show grace. People who've been vertically reconciled to God, reconcile horizontally with other people. You reconcile with anybody this week? As we were seeing last week about this racial hatred between Jews and Gentiles and how Jesus Christ Himself broke down. Is that something we need to do? We don't need a unity conference. Jesus has done the work. We look to Jesus. He's broken down the wall. Now what? Look at what He says. Verse 19, so then, in light of that, in light of the reconciliation, vertical, horizontal, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you, there's people that are, but you, followers of Christ, in Christ, are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's talking about the church here. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Amen. In whom the whole structure, being, present tense, joined together, grows continually into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, so he begins to pray in chapter 3, verse 1, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he gets on a tangent, but it's a, I don't know if you've ever done that before, you start praying, and then you're like, how did I start talking about, why am I thinking about this? 
Yeah, Paul, he's an apostle. He does it too. This one's inspired by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Many of mine are not. It's like, I'm just falling asleep. What's going on here? I'm one of the disciples. Anyway, and uh, he says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, we just talked about it in the last chapter, that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by the revelation as I have written briefly. And we're going to see how when we read the Scriptures, he makes it known to us. There's this mystery, but what's he talking about? We just read verses 19 through 22. Paul gave three metaphors, so his English teacher didn't teach him, don't mix your metaphors. He gave three different metaphors and one sentence about what the church is. Now, without going back to the Bible, when you think of church, what do you think of? And just put it in your head, and I'll probably, with the amount of people in this room, hundreds of different ideas about what that is. And you think about things, if you've been around church, you've probably heard preachers say, the church is not a club for Christians, it's a hospital for the hurting. Okay, is that in the Bible? It's a good statement. It looks great on Twitter. What, what is it true? It's not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. Oh, okay. It's interesting. You gave me hors d'oeuvres on the way in, but all right, sounds good. Like, so, like, like, just ask yourself, are these things true? Is this true? And we see the Bible, the Bible says a lot of stuff about the church that's not in this passage. And so, we're not going to say everything there is to say about the church. You know, Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and prayer and fellowship, the breaking of bread. We saw what the early church did together. All right. We see other places. There's ordinances in the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We see that there's all these one another's of how we're to live together. We're told to meet together or else we'll get hardened by sin. And we're told all these different things about the church. But how much of it's coming from the Scriptures and how much of it's just stuff that we think and experience? Like some people, just think about today, and I'm not judging anybody, I don't know any of your motives, but today with just statistically the amount of people we have coming, you all came for different reasons. Like different people here for different reasons. Some people here, you had a bad week, and you kind of want a fresh start to the next week, kind of wash that part away and get to a new part. Is that, but is that what God intended? Some of you here, you've heard about purpose-driven church and seeker-driven church and equipping-oriented church, and there's been books written about these. How much of it comes from this book? There, there, there are some of you here that you want a TED Talk for Jesus. Be brief, be bright, get off the stage, brother. Like, you just want, tell me what you got. And you know, here's some stats, a couple verses, make me feel good, and I'm out. Like, you want, there's different things that you're looking for. Some of you, it is a preaching center. And like, you just come in, just, you can get a bazillion sermons online at any moment. And like, what is, is that what church is supposed to be? And so I think what we're going to see in this passage of Scripture today, as Paul's revealing this mystery, are some mysterious things about the church and mysterious things about what God's doing, but he's trying to reveal them to us here. And I bet that some of them are things we've never thought about before. And so if we're going to understand this mystery, I think there's two questions we have to answer as we unpack the case. First one is, who is she? Who is the church? Second one is, what is she supposed to be doing according to this passage? Like I said, there's more that could be said, but according to this passage, what is she supposed to be doing? And the first thing that we see in who she is, as you look at these three different metaphors, is God's way of working during this time period. Here's the way that I phrase the point, if you want to put it in your notes, it goes along with the passage. God's church is a mystery for our time. God's church is a mystery for our time. By our time, I mean we live between the times of the two comings of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus when He came and He died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead. The second coming is He's coming back to rule and to reign. In, the me, in, the, in between time, it's called the church age. And that's how God's working. It's what God's working through. And you can like be one of these people that's like, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I was that person at one time. When I first came to Christ, I thought the church was nonsense, just so you know. But it's God's way of working. It's just plan A. There is no plan B. You are the church. You see, in the Bible, there's the universal church, and so you actually are a part of a church with millions of other followers of Christ. But then the, these local manifestations, like in the book of Ephesus, like what you're experiencing today, being here at Southbridge, how do you manifest the universal church is by a local expression, and that's what he's writing to here. 
And he gives these different metaphors. Did you see them? Verses 19 through 22. He talks about a family, talks about a citizenship, talks about the temple. He refers to it like the temple, which is talking about God's dwelling place, a manifestation of His presence. And we're going to unpack each one of these. But the problem with this passage today, let's just acknowledge it at the beginning. What we're going to see is so different from what most of us have experienced. You've got to ask yourself, what is it that I've actually experienced at church? Because for me, it's a lot like I like the sport of football, and some of you may have seen there was a game, a high school game on ESPN a couple weeks ago, August 29th. And I don't know if some of you might not even know that they put high school football on national TV, but they do. And we can debate about is it because it's a money-making scam or it's good for the kids to get exposure. We can talk about all that stuff. But there's one school that's the preeminent high school for high school football, and believe it or not, it's not even in Texas. It's a school out of Florida called IMG Academy. And if you haven't heard of it, you can look it up. Look at the tuition. It's crazy. And it was started by professional athletes, and it is really a breeding ground to develop professional athletes and get them Division I scholarships. Um, and what they'll do is they'll put the school on TV, IMG Academy, oftentimes, and they play other supposed powerhouse schools from around the country. The game on August 29th was against a school that advertises themselves as the IMG Academy of the Midwest. They're from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, their name was Bishop Sycamore. You Google them, it'll come up as the Bishop Sycamore scandal. Let me tell you why. Because when the game started, they started talking about the clash of these titans, these two big schools coming together and playing in this game, but it wasn't far into the first quarter of the game that it was very evident that one school didn't belong playing the other school. In the first quarter, very quickly, it was 23-0. to zero. IMG Academy was up, and the coach of the other school that claims to be the IMG Academy of the Midwest was asked, would you like to end this game because of a mercy rule? He declined. They gave him another option. Would you like a running clock? In other words, we can get this thing over with faster. Uh, it got so bad during the game that they ended up winning 58-0, IMG Academy against Bishop Sycamore, that the analyst on the, during the thing said, this is dangerous. They had these players out here, they don't belong on the field. And some were questioning, like, were they even high school players? And if you look up the scandal, you'll find out some of them were high school players. In fact, there's a story that one of the guys had gotten out of jail the day before, and he was on the team. The coach has a warrant out for his arrest for fraud, not just because of this game, because he was writing bad checks to hotels they were supposed to stay at. They couldn't get on airlines because they had too many criminal records, kids 20, 21 years old, already had kids that were on the team, and they were promoting themselves as a high school. And as you dig into the scandal, what you end up finding out is it wasn't even a real school. It was called Bishop Sycamore, a Roman Catholic school. They contacted the Roman Catholic leaders of that area in Columbus, Ohio, and they said, not only is that not a real school, we don't even have a record of a bishop named Sycamore. Not sure where we got that. And there was a guy that was actually investigating that school for the past three years, and he said that it was a scam. One of the former players was interviewed and asked if he had ever gone to school. He said, one day we went to the public library. One day we went to the public library. Um, how in the world did they end up on ESPN? What happened in the the ESPN is they hired a marketing agency to find a team to play IMG Academy. They couldn't find a team, so they hired a contractor who contacted 200 schools that all declined except for Bishop Sycamore. But you know what's interesting to me? You know when you found out? Game time. Put up or shut up when the pressure's on. Because you can market yourself. They had a website. They had parents they convinced to send their kids there and pay tuition, and they weren't even a real school. But when they got on the field, the truth came out. Do you know what we've been experiencing for the past 18 months, church? Game time. You want to know churches are for real? Who's standing on the truth of God's Word? Because some of us have been duped by a marketing scam. 
and we're coming together and we have a little pepper out for Jesus, but is that what is that what this is talking about? Because no matter what I say to you today, what is this saying about what the church is supposed to be? Did you see it? Look at what it says. The first thing, a new citizenship. Verse 19, so then you, because of what Christ has done in your redemption, your position, your experience of him, vertically reconciled, horizontally reconciled, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are foreigners. But you are fellow citizens. And so with other people, fellow citizens. Most of us here understand citizenship. Most of you here are an American citizen. Some of you, I know your stories, you get green cards, visas. I understand everybody's not, but most of you understand what American citizenship is. It's great. I know the media bashes America right now. It's bad. And they're, they're American citizens with all the rights and privileges, but they're bashing the country, which is part of the freedom that we have, which is kind of crazy. But I just want to say to you, I think we still have a great country. I think the fact that you were born here, and many of you were, was a gift from God for your life. And so be thankful, be thankful for your, your yeah, and I'm not, I'm not, that's not like, yeah, give the Lord a hand. That's great. I'm not saying it's bad to be from Switzerland or Germany or like some of you from different places, India, different places, I get it. But this is a special place. And you look at our country and you see, I know that people are bashing all that stuff. Don't, don't miss out on the gratitude of that. I mean, we have, some of you will see, I mean, we're not far from Fayetteville and different people here, soldiers in the community. And you've got different, everybody here may have different political views. You might think it's wrong that we pull out of Afghanistan. You might think it's right that we pull out of Afghanistan, whether we're at war, all that stuff. Do you know that the soldiers are just following the orders? They signed up because they were willing to give up a bunch of their privileges, a bunch of their rights, sacrifice their life so that you and I could have freedoms. And so if you see them, I just want our church to have this culture, honor people that are honorable. You see them in a community, thank them. If you're at a restaurant, buy their meal. You, if you're at a restaurant, you've got enough resources to buy another meal. Buy their meal. Like you just be generous and teach your kids to honor people that are honorable. And you, if, as an American citizen, you know if you are one, that comes with certain rights and privileges. And you think about those rights and privileges, and it also comes with certain responsibilities. And we can bash all we want, but listen to this. There are people around the world that will go through a lot of work to live in this country. And so we can say like, oh, so-and-so hates us or whatever. Why is it that almost a million people last year during COVID shutdowns became, legally became American citizens, naturalized, 625,000, I think it is, if you check the Census Bureau page. So why are they doing it? Because they want to be here. That's a great blessing for you. Can I tell you something? Being an American citizen is incredible. It's got nothing on being in Christ. Your citizenship is not here. America, you can be an American citizen, experience the rights, experience the privileges, but the Bible says if you're in Christ, you're part of a heavenly citizenship. You're actually connected more with a brother or sister in China than you are with somebody else who knows the American flag. The, the way that Paul says it to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3 is this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not saying anything bad about being an American citizen. It's great. It's a blessing. Thank the Lord for it. But do you realize the freedoms that you have in Christ, how far they supersede the freedoms you have in America? Do you realize that America is going to fall someday? Every nation does. Rome fell. China's going to fall. They're all, it's all temporary stuff. But the name of Jesus isn't going anywhere. And so you look at this and you see you're part of a fellow citizenship. This is not to become uh, nationalistic or, or, or somehow you know, race-oriented. It's the opposite of that. This is broad in our horizons. This is a heavenly citizenship. In fact, if you read Hebrews chapter 11, incredible chapter of Scripture, if you get to the end of it, it says we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Keep your eyes on Christ. That's to run the race before you. Who are the cloud of witnesses? It's all the people that have just been talked about. Abraham watching you. 
Noah, watching you. Moses, watching you. And it says about them in Hebrews chapter 11, the world was not worthy of these people. And do you know why it says that? It says because they had their focus on a different city whose builder and architect was God. It wasn't because they were from Israel. It wasn't because they were Jewish. It wasn't because of their nation. That was just the assignment they had. And so you see what the Scriptures say in Hebrews chapter 13. It says this, for here we have no lasting city. In other words, all these cities are going to evaporate. Some of these places we read about in the Bible, that city doesn't even exist anymore. No lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so most of you here, unless you're from out of town, you live in Raleigh or Durham. And I get it, this Cary, Holly Springs, I'm not discriminating, don't write me an email. Wake Forest, we love you, it's totally great. Rollsville, whatever. But just say RDU, you live in Raleigh. And I get the Raleigh people are like, Durham's terrible, Raleigh's the best. And let me tell you something. Forbes, USA Today, read all of them. They all put both of them in the top 10 places to live in the world. But that's not your city. That's your assignment. Raleigh-Durham, great place to live. Great jobs, great schools, great people, not bad traffic most of the time. The rest of y'all need to start working from home, but whatever. It's a great place. It's a privilege to live here, but it's not your city. It's your assignment from God. Your city is in heaven. And as your eyes look there, you start to realize the privileges you have of being in Christ. Just think about them with me for a second. Just from the book of Ephesians. We don't need to go to the Gospel of John. We don't need to go to Luke and Romans. All great stuff in there of the blessings of being in Christ. But just in Ephesians, think about what we've read. We've been adopted into God's family. You've got a new name. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, those who believe on His name have the right to be called children of God. That's a privilege. Those of you who are in Christ, no matter what you've done in your life, when He looks at you, He sees you as holy and blameless. He's lavished grace into your life according to, not out of, according to God's riches, which we read later in this passage. They're unsearchable, meaning there's so many of them. Some of you are watching the Gabby uh, Petito story. And did you hear? Didn't they say they had Dog the Bounty Hunter on that? that? Man, let me tell you something. If Dog's ever looking for you, you did something wrong, all right? He might be the greatest tracker. I don't know. I don't know enough about that. But what that unsearchable means in this passage of Scripture is that no tracker can figure it. It's infinite. God's riches of grace are infinite. They're unending. You're never going to be able to find all of them. But go after it. Because as you do, you see the depths of His grace in your life. Privileges. You've been given that blessing. You've been given that right. That is yours in Christ. And so you've got freedoms in America. You've got responsibilities as well. That's why people go through the naturalization process because they're learning what does it mean to be a citizen? What are these opportunities you have? What does it mean for you? You can vote. You can say these things. But what do you, what's expected of you? So what, we could go through. That was just like a couple seconds thinking of Ephesians, just chapter 1. We didn't even get to chapter 2. Dead, made alive. You want to talk about freedom? You were in darkness, following Satan, following sin, following your flesh. Now you've been made free. You've been brought into the light. You've got Jesus Christ, the truth. The truth sets you free. He is the truth. Amen? Man, i got a lot of stuff we're not covering. We've got to get into this. So much good stuff here. But listen, so many blessings. What's the privilege? Well, the privilege are so many privileges. What are the responsibilities? It's that we'd be people of the Word. So you know you've experienced this in your secular life as well. Because as an American citizen, you know we've got guiding documents. The Constitution. We can argue about interpretations of it. But you see what? We do the same thing with the Bible. And you can talk about uh, Declaration of Independence. But, but the Bible, as Christians, as followers of Christ, new citizenship, we should be known as people of the Word. And so can, can you imagine, just like, like, I'm not talking about Judeo-Christian founding. The passage says that Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone of the church, not a founding on Christian principles. And so if you, when you see, hear that, you're hearing like, 
Muslims, Mormons, and Christians can all agree. Like, you shouldn't murder people. All right? We got that. Can you imagine a society that we built everything on this? You're just trying to think about what that would be like. As you think about that, let me read, tell you about a, a, an article I read this week. It's by a guy named Clarence Hall. He was a war correspondent in World War II. And he was talking about how coming towards the end of the war, 1945, uh, America, we had just bombed this Japanese village. We were coming through, uh, it was somewhere near Okinawa, and we bombed through this area. And so he was coming in with a sergeant and some other GIs, and they came up, and these two Japanese old men came out. One had a Bible underneath his arm, and the other one was speaking Japanese to them. One was the schoolmaster, one was the mayor. And they didn't understand Japanese. The sergeant knows that war, um, lots of deceptions used, all that stuff. He stopped the men, even though they were, they were unarmed other than the Bible. Uh, they stopped the men, and uh, he had an interpreter come, and the interpreter told him, these men are greeting us as fellow Christians. <laughs> they can't understand why we came in shooting, but they're, they're greeting us as fellow Christians. The guys weren't necessarily Christians that were coming in there. But what you find out when you read the whole story is that those two Japanese men had only met one American ever before. It was a missionary who had come 30 years earlier and had led those two guys to Christ in a village of about a thousand people and then left them a Bible and said, live by this book, and then the missionary was out. And so the next Americans they see, they just assume they're Christians. Like I said, couldn't understand why they were shooting at them, but they were excited, greeting them as fellow Christians, told the sergeant, we want to tour you around our village. And so the sergeant was hesitant still. He doesn't know if he's being duped here, but he's got his guys, and they go through, and they start showing him how they're running this town, all based on the Word of God. And they start showing them the gardens and the terrace gardens they have and the way they're running their geography and how people interact. And they couldn't believe it as they were coming through how hospitable they were just shooting, getting shot at. Talk about love your enemies. People are welcoming them in, loving them, smiling on their faces. There's bombs like holes as they're going through this community. The journalist said that he was so blown away by this community. The GIs and the American military decided that these people weren't a threat. And so they went on to the next place. He said when he got a day off, he got a a driver for his Jeep and they went back. It was a Sunday, and they were watching these people worship who had never been taught how to worship. They were just doing it. And so they were singing songs, he said. They were reading a ton of Scripture from what he said. And he said, and when the the whole meeting was done, the mayor got up, which is one of the two guys that the the, um, missionary had led to Christ, and he laid his Bible down, and he said, what problems are we having in our community? And people would bring up their problems, relational problems, financial problems. And every time somebody had a problem, he said the guy had this Bible he'd been using for 30 years with all these pages that were earmarked, and he'd just go to the passage and he'd start reading the truth to the people. They would make their decisions of what to do next based on the Bible. And he started explaining that their governance, their whole legal system was based on the Ten Commandments. Their social expectations were based on the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapter 5. You start reading in that area. And everything that they were doing with their rights, their responsibilities, their privileges, all that stuff, they had a democracy that was like this pure democracy there. And he said the Jeep driver leaned over to him, the journalist, and said, so this is what happens when two guys fall in love with Jesus and start obeying the Bible for 30 years? And he said, and then the Jeep driver looked around and saw the shelled areas and he said, maybe we're using the wrong weapons. And when I read that statement, I thought, if I were dropped in, you know, Afghanistan and there was a war going on and we're fighting and people are shooting at me, I want an AR-15. I want a bulletproof jacket. Like, I want goggles. I want a Black Hawk helicopter to come pick me up or a tank to drive me out of that place. But if that's not my enemy, those weapons do me no good. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 that who we're battling against is not flesh and blood. 
Let me tell you, over the last 18 months, your war has not been with your brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, it's not even against the people you're getting mad at on TV that are saying things that are contrary to the truth. They're following someone else. The rulers and principalities of darkness that are ruling in this world, and you're getting mad at people because they're doing what you did before you knew Christ. They're following the flesh. They're following the way of this world. They're following Satan. And you're battle. You've one weapon, Ephesians chapter 6, one weapon. It's called a sword, and it's this book, the Word of God. And that's part of your citizenship. Can you imagine a citizenship that actually lived? That's what the church is supposed to be. No church is doing it perfectly. But when it's game time, you find out who's trying to do it. What else? Not just a citizenship. Next part of verse, uh, we're still only in verse 19. Oh, man, sorry about that. <laughs> a new family. Look, at it. it says, a members of the household of God. That's family language. Let me read you what one Bible commentator said on these verses. Uh, Kyle, or, or Klein Snodgrass is his name. It says, from here, talking about verses uh, 19 and 20, from here, all else in the Christian life flows. The church as a family of faith should have the feel, so not just like statements of truth, should have the feel of family. Family members, here's what they do, care for each other, are committed to each other, confront each other, and sustain each other. A sense of family should shape our worship. Worship should not be like a production we watch. Rather, we need the comfort and freedom of being involved in a family experience. Let me just say this, and your young parents will all say amen. You hear a baby scream in the middle of my preaching, and you get annoyed because you want to hear what I have to say, hey, the Lord has for us in that moment that child. All right? And that's okay. I mean, i got kids. I totally understand. Be thankful that that child is in a family who wants to raise them to learn the truth. And so don't just be annoyed with like your experience. You're, and it says we should have freedom and comfort in how we worship. And let me just say this. You're worshiping by somebody who does it different than you. Maybe they got their hands up and you're like, I can't see. Move. All right? Like, it's okay. And so you say we're a freedom. But we're a family here. The family's not, we're not all the same, but we're a family. It shouldn't be a production. It says rather we need the comfort and freedom of being involved in a family experience, joining together to communicate with God, to address and be addressed by God, by the way, no one should be allowed to feel like an… You're not even allowed to feel like an outsider in the church. That's how hospitable we should be. All people need to know they belong. Because in a family, you might be the weirdest relative we have, <laughs> but you're part of the family. Amen? Because when you're in a family, how do you know… What is it like to experience family? And the Bible goes on, and we don't have time in this sermon to talk about it, but there's 59 commandments in the Bible that are called the one another's of Scripture that we bear one another's burdens. Well, you have to know each other's burdens to do that. And I get it in a church our size. Like the people over on this side of the room probably never even seen the people on this side of the room. I get it. But you've got to have some people in the family that you're close with. And you don't bear one, confess, confess sin to one another. The Bible actually says that. Like, do you trust anybody that much? How can you begin to trust somebody? Because of love. Because you want the one another that summarizes all of them? Love one another. Here's the problem with me saying that. We're so sappy and wimpy with what that means in our culture. We don't even know what that means. It doesn't have any punch when I say that. Love one, just love one another. Oh, okay. <laughs> what does that even mean? Like some of us get this idea that it means like this sentimental feeling towards each other. And that's not, that's not at all what we're talking about. It's, yeah, there's passion, there's feeling. I'm not trying to de deny feelings, but that's not what love. Let me ask you this. What, what's been your experience in life where you've experienced the greatest love from another human and for me, you know what it was? Having kids. Because I didn't know I had the capacity to love that way. And I've not learned more about how much God loves me as his child than when I've had children. Because I have never had somebody in my life before that I literally want to choke 
okay? And I'm not kidding. Like, I want to just choke them, but I love them, <laughs> right? Like, you had that? Like, you have kids? Okay, okay. I've done a lot of this experience. Because I, I want what's best for them, and I'm willing to sacrifice my own self-interest so that they can have what I believe is best for them. That's love. That you'd be willing to sacrifice what's, what is in your own interest, maybe your best interest, for their best interest. That's love. And who in the church do you have that for? And who has that for you? That's what it is to be like family. And we're supposed to be a family, a citizenship. Did you see this next one? This next one is rich. It talks about being a dwelling place of God, a, a temple. The way that I'd say it if I were writing it in notes is a new manifestation of God's presence. Because he's using temple imagery here to talk about the church. Look at what he says in verse 22. And so he's just said, a fellow citizenship, verse 19, members of God's household in verse 20. And then he goes on to talk about verse 19, verse 20. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets is a teaching of the truth. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So this, he's giving this building imagery now. He's already talked about citizenship family. In whom the whole structure, present tense, being joined together, grows, it's dynamic, into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you, he's talking about you as the temple of the Lord, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so you read through the Bible and you see this temple imagery all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And Genesis is the Garden of Eden. It's the dwelling place of God. Now we read in the Bible that God's everywhere always. Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? Answer, nowhere. But we also read in the Bible there are places where God's presence is manifested, meaning you experience it. And through the Old Testament, the language is used as temple. It's called a tabernacle. Uh, when they're wandering in the wilderness, it's a tent that's set up. But that was the place people went to meet with God. They brought their sacrifices to God. And God's, He would symbolize to the other nations that His presence was with these people was through the tabernacle. It was a temporary thing. Set up and tear down. All of y'all who were here for 11 years of theater church, say amen. Set up and tear down. There you go. And then you get to the, t the temples. Solomon builds a temple, and that gets destroyed. And they, so there's signs of God's physical presence in that place. It didn't contain him. He's still omnipresent everywhere. But you want to manifest presence? You go to the temple. Then Ezekiel builds a temple. Then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus comes. He's God in the flesh. John chapter 1 says, and he dwelt among us in some translations. Some of your translations say he tabernacled with us. It was a manifestation of God's presence in Jesus. And now, so think about the mind-blowing truth that Paul's saying here. He's saying the church is the manifest presence of God's presence in this world today. Now, some of you know another truth that's taught in the Bible, and it's true. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Talking about you individually. That is true. Different context, different application. That's not what's being taught here. This is a different truth. This is a corporate truth. That God's presence is manifested in the gathering of the believers of the universal church and local expressions. He's talking to Ephesus here, but it applies to us too at Southbridge. And here's the statement that I've been hearing in this unique time in history from people. We've got some people, uh, as soon as we open the doors back up to meet together, you were here. Some of you have taken a little bit longer to come back to meeting in person, but almost to a person, the people who've come back and stayed, say to me, I didn't realize how much I missed this. What'd you miss? It wasn't the preaching. Because you can get that online anytime from any preacher you want. What'd you miss? Wasn't the music? You can download that from your favorite group, get whatever you want in your car. You get, wasn't the people? I mean, you can meet with people and have coffee and talk to people. I think part of it's this. 
It's the manifest presence of God that you experience. And the gathering of the saints, we're speaking the truth, we're living as citizenship, living as family. There's something with that that's happening that's hard to put words on because it's a little bit more mystical than some of us are comfortable with. We see it also in other ways of expressing the Christian life like this. How about what, what is being talked about if God's everywhere all the time in the Great Commission? Go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Teaching them to obey, not just to hear and know. Obey everything that I've taught you. And then a promise. I'm with you always. That's the manifest. As you're living on mission, you, you experience the manifest presence of God. Not just His omnipresence that He's everywhere all the time. So there's something happening here that's unique, and he says it's dynamic. It's growing and being built and joined together on the cornerstone. Jesus, how's it growing? I think there's multiple applications to this. One, as you grow in Christ, your experience of the manifest presence of God changes. And Adam, our worship leader today, he was talking about it, and I asked him to say this, but he, say, he mentioned this idea that might sound funny to some of you, especially you A-type personalities, like the fragrance of Christ. He's referring to a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians. Because the more you're around something and it's, you experience the environment of that, it comes off of you as well. You've been around uh, people who smoke before and you get the smoke smell off of you. You've been around incense and you get the incense smell. You go through the Macy's, the perfume department, and all of a sudden you smell like perfume. Like the more you're around Jesus, the more you're like Jesus, and other people start to experience that from you. And so as you grow, you take that presence where you go. I think there's also a numeric growth. I met a guy a couple of weeks ago in our church. And we were standing in the front row talking, and uh, he said to me that he had just come to Christ. Uh, a guy from our church, another member, had led him to Jesus, and so he was checking out that guy's church and wanted to see what it was like. He was here this morning at first service, got baptized over in Falls Lake. Like, he was just telling me his story. It was great. That's part of the growth of the church, not just that numerically more people are attending a place. Like, if he decides this is a church, awesome. If he decides another church is a church, great. But there's a growth in that because God's expanding his borders of wherever that guy goes now, the presence of God is going with him. And as he experiences more of the presence of God, that goes into more places. There's a dynamic that's taken here with the manifest presence of God, and he's doing it through the church. That's some of who she is. Like I said, this passage doesn't say everything there is, but what does she do? Chapter 3. We read some of this. For this reason, he starts his prayer. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That's pretty interesting because he was arrested by Rome, falsely accused, but he calls himself a prisoner of Christ because he knows he lives on mission, just like some of you. When I said to some of you, RDU's not your city, it's your assignment. You know what else? We could get more practical and say, some of you are salespeople and you don't work for the insurance department. You work for Jesus. The insurance department is your platform. Some of you are doctors, and you were at Duke. Oh, how prestigious. That's awesome. Great research hospital. How incredible is that? But you don't, the name outside, you work for the name in heaven, Jesus. Here's lawyers. Some of you are trying to get your name on the door. Awesome. I hope you do. But just so you know, that law firm's not going to exist forever. They're going to tear that building down someday. You work for Jesus. So you represent him in every area you go to. And Paul's saying, I'm a prisoner. Jesus didn't arrest him. But I'm, he could have been released if you read the book of Acts. He decided to stay because he was trying to get the gospel to Caesar. I'm a prisoner of Christ. He's living on mission. On behalf of you Gentiles, that's love. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, the trust he's been given, God's trusted him with grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me. What's the mystery? Look at the next verses, verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight. So you, as a follower of Christ, reading the Bible, can understand the mystery. Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations. Oh, it's alluded to in the Old Testament a ton. It's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is, here it is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. You and I are the Gentiles, by the way, members of the same body 
and partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the promises of God, when you weren't in Christ, they don't apply to you. But now that you're in Christ through the gospel, by grace, through faith, you've been saved. You've been brought into relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross for you, not anything you did. That's the mystery. And now you have a relationship with God of this gospel. What do we do? I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, here's the purpose, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable rich word, riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone, not just Gentiles, everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What is it? Verse 10, so that… So we're given a purpose in verse 8. He's going to preach to the Gentiles, unsearchable riches of Christ. But then verse 9, to everyone, the mystery hidden. Well, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold, oh, that's an incredible word, multifaceted, infinite, no matter how much you search it, you're not going to know, but some can be revealed. Manifold wisdom of God might be made known to not just the world, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, not just you, not just me, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is a critical mission. And what we see here is a humongous vision, bigger than you've ever heard at any vision casting event for your company, for Apple, for your church, whatever. This is huge. This is God-sized vision right here. Critical mission, God-sized vision with a courageous conviction. And we'll read that in just a second. But I want to ask you this question. Think about the mission. If you could ask God for one thing, you knew you'd get it. What would you ask for? Think about what's going on in your life. Think about where you're at. Think about what's happening in our world. If you could ask God for one thing, what would you ask him? I read a story from a study. Uh, it was actually in the 1990s, and so I'm sure the dollar amount would change and things like that. But people were asked, what would you do for $10 million? And here are some of the answers, uh, percentage-wise. 7% of people said that they would kill a stranger for $10 million. Hey, just so you know, statistically, one of them's probably here. <laughs> just, just FYI, get to know everybody, all right? 25% would abandon their church. 25% would abandon their family. 16% would give up their American citizenship. And I remember it was like 3 or 6% said they would put a child up for adoption. Sorry, kids. $10 million. Okay, when you're done judging those people, listen to this. <clears throat> what would you ask for if you knew you could have it? $10 million? Would you ask for bigger than that? And I don't mean a higher dollar amount. Think about Solomon. He, God asked him, you know, you could have one thing. What do you want? He didn't ask for riches or power. Wisdom. And then he would get riches and power. Maybe you ask for wisdom. Maybe you ask for something else. You know, let me read you what the psalmist says. I think he's on to something. Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord. Okay, only one thing. That I will seek after. That I may dwell, manifest presence, dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. A.W. Tozer says it like this. The most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. That wasn't necessarily an inspired statement. It's not in the Bible, but if he's even remotely right about that, then do you realize how critical this mission is? Because we've just been told that our mission as the church is to reveal God to the world. But not just the world. There's another world that most of us never think of because the vision's so huge. You want to write down what this is? The way that I wrote it, to put it with the passages, that God's church has a ministry to reveal his mystery 
who God is, a mystery to the world. How are they ever going to know? By looking at the church. That's his plan. Did you see verse 10? Did you see what he says there? He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. So it's not just Jews and Gentiles being reconciled, although that's part of it. It's not just you being reconciled to God. That's part of it. But all of those things reveal who God actually is. What his wisdom is seems like foolishness to the world. Why would he send his son to die for a bunch of people that rejected him? It's foolishness, but it's the wisdom of God. It's the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, but not just to this world, to the rulers and authorities and the heavenly places. See, the problem for so many of us as churches is our visions are way too small. And when our visions are small, we might accomplish some things for God, but we miss out on all that God has for us. You think about that with a, with a small vision. I was reading this morning a story about a pharmacist in Atlanta who came up with a syrupy drink uh, that people really liked, and he was selling it for a nickel to everybody that came into his pharmacy. A guy came in named Asa Candler. I don't know if you've heard that name or not, founder of Coca-Cola. And he was talking to this pharmacist. He bought from the pharmacist his recipe. They ended up putting it together with some soda water on accident. It became refreshing and sweet, and people really liked it. They advertised it as medicinal, helping headaches and refreshing and gave you energy. It's Coca-Cola. He paid $238 for the recipe and then eventually paid the pharmacist $2,300 for the rights to sell Coca-Cola. The guy was a brilliant businessman. If you read about it, obviously he's made millions and millions of dollars on this, but his narrow vision cost him because some people came to him and said, we have an idea. Instead of people having come to a fountain to get this, what if we put it in a bottle and we took it to people like on their job sites and in their homes? He thought it was ridiculous. So he sold the rights to sell Coca-Cola by the bottle. It's an amazing contract for $1. Can you imagine missing out? I mean, he had, there were some good things he did. He made a lot of money. But all that he missed out on because of his small vision. And many of you have been to vision casting times as a church. We've done them. How about, the, well, here's a vision. We're not going to be a cruise ship. We're going to be a battleship. Good vision, too small. We're not going to just be a, a place for saints to gather together. We want sinners to come too. Okay, too small. We're going to be purpose-driven. Too small. We're going to be secret-centered. Too small. We're going to be for the saints. Too small. We're going to reach our city. Too small. Okay, then the world. Too small. Then generations. Too small. It's all about here. It's all about now. Well, the future. We're going to send missionaries all over. Too small. We're going to plant churches. Too small. Do you see what God said? There's a whole other world watching us. Did you see this? The manifold wisdom of God might be made known to angels that are dwelling in his presence continually. They're watching us to find out what he's like. Us? That's God's wisdom. Fallen angels? Yeah, because you know what happens to the fallen? We don't have time for angelology. Uh, we entertain angels. Sometimes we don't even know it. We see what angels do as they minister to us. There's a battle taking place that they're involved in. A third of the angels fell at, at the beginning. They're never going to be redeemed. And they're watching us. And when they see God do a work in your life as a follower of Christ or you become a follower of Christ, like when my friend from the first service trusted Christ, the Bible says in Luke chapter 15 and verse 10, all of heaven rejoiced over one person coming to Christ. Imagine what that must be like in heaven. Every time someone trusts Jesus here on earth, First Peter says that angels long to look into your salvation. The literal translation, First Peter chapter 1, is they stoop to look as something they do not understand because they will never experience it themselves because no angel will ever know what it's like to be lost and then found to be in darkness and then in light. And so whenever somebody does, it says that all of heaven rejoices. I have a feeling the angels don't speak in King James language. 
But it's like if you're next to somebody at a game and something good happens and you're like hugging people you don't know and you're like, yeah! Like I imagine that sometimes the angels are turning to each other and be like, he just did it again. Did you see that guy? He saved that guy. Are you kidding me? The manifold wisdom. I would have never picked that guy. Like you're thinking about that. Some of you are going, I'm that guy. <laughs> That's right? And like, and then some of you come here and, and the angels are watching us as, as a church, the universal church and gathering local expression. You're going to go hold babies today and, they, and the angels know how selfish you are. And they're going, God's doing that through them and helping somebody into the church today and who you naturally would be without God in your life. And they see that and then they worship God because of it. That's part of the church. Like that's bigger than just anything we see and the things that we set examples for, got goals for. Like there's a bigger thing happening. God's got a big vision for the church beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. See, my favorite verse in the book is in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, but I don't want you to miss that those verses are not just for you as an individual. Let me just read it to you. Now to him who is able, let's talk about God, to do far more abundantly than all that not you ask, we ask or think, the church gathered, according to the power that's at work within, not just you, us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. How does he do this? When we live as new citizens, a new family, and the manifest presence of God is made known not just in this world, but in another world. So what do we do? Let me just read the last couple of verses as your application today for the sermon. What Paul says in verses 11 through 13, this was according to the eternal purposes that, he, that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness. We were foreigners, dead, cut off, but we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart. And what Paul's referring to here is his imprisonment. They wouldn't get discouraged because of the circumstances that are happening. I think if he were to say it today to you, say, you see this stuff's happened over these last 18 months, follower of Christ, do not lose heart. I mean, that means don't be discouraged. In other words, have courage because this is done for you, which is for your glory. It's going to point people to Him. That's our role, to reveal the mystery, what was formerly concealed, who God really is being revealed. Father, we come before You grateful that You would pick people like us. How crazy. I wouldn't do it that way. But you are so, Your ways are so much higher than my ways. And so much higher than the ways of all of us even putting our minds together collectively in this room and online. And we trust you. And we're grateful that you have made us a citizen of heaven. I pray if there's anybody that doesn't know your son Jesus, they would place their faith in Christ today. If you're watching online, put the word Jesus in the comments. Someone will contact you if you're in this room. Come up to one of us after the service that, that's at the first time guest tent or the next step table or me or somebody you see on the worship team. We'd all love to tell you how to have a relationship with Jesus. And Father, I pray for those of us that are in Christ. You've told us some great truths today. I pray that we wouldn't be the Bishop Sycamore High School of churches. I pray that we would be a place, not perfectly, I get it, but that you would show a new citizenship, people that live like family, a church that, that people experience your presence. They might not put their finger on it, but you're just here doing stuff. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.